but uh, yeah, several of them. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11 will be one of them as well. And uh, it will actually be one of the first passages we look at. So if that's where you'd like to be at, you can be that. For some reason, my Bible got all backwards and everything. So give me a second here and I will get to 2 Corinthians. Maybe it's because I was in Exodus. A little rusty, apparently. But uh, thanks to Donna and Marlene for holding down the fort last week. We appreciate it. And uh, it is still a good time where two or more are gathered, right? That's a very, very true statement. Second Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11, we'll be looking at first, and then we'll jump around a couple different passages. Again, thank you so much for your prayers and your concern during the time we've been sick or out because of sickness. Um, it's good to be back. And I can say one thing that we all need to encourage one another is taking care and making healthy choices and boosting our immune system to fight off uh, infection and sickness. Whether it's eating a little bit better than we are now or going that extra walk or calming your body and spirit and prayer and journaling, there's a lot of things that we can do to help ourselves stay healthy. Now, I've entitled today's message, The Sins of the Father. And today we'll look at several verses in the Bible that address this concept. Uh, Here's something uncomfortable to start with, though. Uh, A cursory reading of them might lead you to believe that they contradict one another. Uh, Where one insinuates people are punished for their father's sins, i.e., you know, person, I will punish them to the third and fourth generation. We'll talk about that verse here in a little bit. Others state that they're not. The idea of scripture seeming to say two different things, and I say seeming to, is enough to make a churchgoer get goosebumps. (laughs) Fear not, that's why we study scripture within its context, not just plucking it out of thin air and and making it work the way we want it to, but understanding each passage for what it is and then for what the whole Bible is. But before all that, I must tell you the topic behind this topic. Yes, I entitled it uh, The Sins of the Father, But where these passages deal with sin and guilt, specifically guilt here, there's a modern day uh, philosophy uh, in connection with the topic of racism that brings this to the most to to the forefront today. This philosophy highly followed and pushed around the U.S. today. It heaps guilt and demands people heap guilt upon themselves in order to be forgiven and accepted. Then their only next best step is just to do better, I guess. Uh, They're guilty by virtue of their skin tone, their ancestry, but most of all, the vile actions of their ancestors. These folks are held responsible for the actions of people who are long dead. And this, this is why I wanted to look at a passage about the sins of the Father. Does the Bible say that this kind of guilt is actually holy, useful, and redeeming? Well, let's dive into the word and see. First, let's start, though, with a clean slate, just for a moment, and think and contemplate on the topic of guilt. What is guilt and where it actually comes from, apart from the context of that racial philosophy? Real guilt is the result of a working conscience, a working conscience. Um, This is only something that is personally activated. 
Our first passage today isn't actually even a sins of the father reference or passage. It comes from the second letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. It references his first letter, 1 Corinthians, you know, and, and that he had to identify some sin and wrong that was going on with them. And then he talks to, his, uh, to the believers about that, those believers' response to what he told them about it. So let's look at that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proven yourself to be innocent in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to just look one more time and and reflect on verse 10 for a second there. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The feeling of guilt comes from within as a result of a working conscience. Sometimes you just know something is right from wrong, and sometimes you learn the boundaries of the rules, right? It can be informed by the rule of law in a particular group. For instance, somebody breaks a known law, uh, or the idea there's a law there, and if I break it, mm, I might want to break it. Uh, Fortunately, sometimes going against the rules becomes alluring to us and we sin in spite of the rules. We recognize it doesn't satisfy like we hoped. We have regret and remorse, and we identify we did something wrong that we sinned, and then we repent. Not everybody gets to the repent stage, by the way. This is a stage that intentionally turning away from those actions we were, we were heading towards and we turned directly away from it and had the opposite direction. That's repentance in a visual. Real guilt is associated with taking responsibility for one's own actions. Real guilt is associated with taking responsibility for one's own actions. Parents may have regrets when their child, whom they've raised to follow God, may have guided along, that they've guided along the way and continue to pray for night and day. Those same kids grow up to be adults who live far from God. They know right from wrong, and they still choose sin and self. You know very well that many Christian moms and dads and grandparents feel responsible for not doing enough. They feel responsible. But if you believe, friend, if you believe in free will, you've got to believe a man or woman is actually responsible for their own actions, not you. So we shouldn't feel guilty for things that we've not done, 
because we are not guilty. Here are just a few passages where Scripture identifies blame and guilt for sin. Deuteronomy 24, 16, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Ezekiel 18, 20 says this, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the, of the righteous will be credited to them. And the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Deuteronomy 24, 16 clarifies this matters, uh, gives clarity in matters of justice. The entire chapter is mainly preoccupied with how to treat one another and what to do if someone doesn't treat another the way that God intended, like the creation of God that they are. The Ezekiel passage is part of a bigger discussion. It actually starts out with, A trite little saying, you know, a a pity party proverb, if you will. Now, Ezekiel 18, 2b says this, The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Have you ever heard this, or having sour grapes? This expression that they're talking about here, this idea is that the current generation, the one saying this proverb about somebody else eating sour grapes, They are blaming their current condition, the nonsense, the garbage that they don't like about life right now that is going on for the sins based on the based on the sins of their forefathers. They wouldn't take responsibility for their own and their own acceptance of wickedness and idolatry, which was what was going on. They just wanted to blame the previous generation. So they weren't owning their own sin. They were blaming their condition on their forefathers' sin. The MacArthur uh, Bible commentary phrases it this way. They sinned, they ate sour grapes, and now we inherit bitterness. I don't know if you've ever bit into a grape that tastes awful and you just spat it out. Or I don't know, but sometimes I stay away from fruit because I'm not sure which flavor it's coming, coming towards me. Uh, And I can't imagine thinking you're going to sink your teeth into a juicy, sweet grape and you get nothing but bitterness from it. So this sentiment, God says, nope, this isn't reality, folks. You die for your own sins. In fact, this chapter makes a careful analogy. It's wonderful. It's like he knew that we were going to have this discussion about the sins of the father He gives a real-world example of identifying the important chain of consequences. So I want to read this for you here uh, in Ezekiel 18, 5 through 17. And it says this, hopefully you can follow me here. It says, suppose, verse 5, suppose there was a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines nor look at the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during the period. He does not oppress anyone, but, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, he gives his food to the, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is 
we would probably agree with him. Righteous, it says. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Just stop right there. Some of those may sound familiar. Kind of reminds me of Jesus saying, you know, when you did this to the least of these, you did it unto me kind of thing that that sounds like a lot of the same things. But also these were specific guidelines and rules for life of how you were supposed to interact with people and the right ways you were supposed to live. And so the Lord is saying here, this is a picture of what a righteous man is, the situation. But then verse 10 says, suppose he, the man, has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. So you've got the righteous father, you've got a violent son. And the violent son, and he, just to exasperate us, he goes on and he says pretty much everything. He says, he eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to idols. He does detestable things. He lends at interest and takes a profit. And then ask the question here, will such a man live? Well, of course, whoever's listening to Ezekiel share the word of the Lord here goes, no, the answer is no. He says he will not because he has done all these detestable things. He will be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Sorry, not on his hands, his head. 14, so that was, only th- that was only like four verses right there. But suppose his son, so now you're down to the grandson. So righteous granddad, you got the violent son. Now violent son's son, if you can follow me here, verse 14, suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins of his father that he commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the Mount Shrines, does not look at idols, and he goes on and on, of all basically copy and paste from what grandpa did. He lived this righteous life. And he asked this question uh, at, at, at the end of verse 17. He, will, or he says, he will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbery, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. So grandpa lives righteously, dad not so much, son righteously, and neither grandpa or grandson bear guilt for the actions of the guy in the middle. Neither suffers consequences directly connected with this bad dad. If that's completely true and illustrates personal responsibility, then why is there even a debate about this? If this is so clear-cut, Why does this sins the father talk even happen? Well, it's because there still are consequences that we bear for the things that we didn't do. Maybe it won't be a death sentence, but there are some consequences that come down the pipe. Excuse me. (coughs) Similar to the consequences, a couple weeks ago we talked about uh, armed or, uh, or armless and uh, firearms, self-defense, that topic a couple weeks ago. Uh, And one of the things that God brought to my mind and understanding is the fact that there still are consequences even when you defend your life or the life of somebody else with lethal force, you are still then taking the life of another person in defense. 
We go round and round on the philosophical okayness of that, but there still is some consequence to doing that. There's a mark on your soul that you have taken in another life. There's, and I'm not saying either way is, is good or bad. I'm just saying that is the reality, the nature of the thing. There's trauma that takes place there. Growing up in an abusive home, in, in the concepts of this situation, the consequences that we bear for things we didn't do, uh, growing up in an abusive home, exposure to things like drugs, alcohol, violence, and various nefarious and illegal activities, they have impact on people. Namely, children who didn't have a choice about being brought up in that environment. They may feel guilt for why their parents are the way they are. Uh, this made me think of a song. You guys know I've mentioned this band before. You've maybe not heard it, known them, but they're called DC Talk. Um, and they, they wrote a song a number of years ago called What Have We Become? And this paints a very sad picture in verse 2 um, about what taking on someone else's guilt can do to a child. Verse 2 says this, Mom and dad are fighting as Rosie lies there crying. For once again, she's overheard regrets of their mistake. With Christmas bells are ringing, little Rosie'd leave them grieving. The gift she'd give her family would be the pills she'd take. And then there's a, bri- there's a little bridge that says, an inconvenient child, she wasn't worth their while. So in a way, people become victims of their parents' sins. But they may act as perpetrators at the same time. Another consequence is that person, maybe that son or that daughter, they may latch onto the same rebellious and sinful desires as their forefathers. Back to the grapes illustration, right? Yeah, there was sin there. And yeah, maybe it continued on and you grew up in it. But then you also had a chance and a choice to choose it or not. When a child sees their parents treat each other in a less than honorable manner, shall we say, they might think that it's okay and normal to do so as well. And even though that child doesn't receive any punishment or guilt directly, it comes with them into their marriage, and unless they identify it and deal with it, it's going to stick around. And of course, one rebellious attitude, and we're coming full circle, I promise you, is that of racism. The belief that your race or ethnicity is superior to others. It affects the way that you interact with others, treat others, talk about others when you think no one's listening. Guess what? God hears, and sometimes so do little kids' ears and teen ears. So let's read the quintessential passage. The one I hadn't kind of buried the lead here on this of sins of the father. It comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven. It says this, and he passed in front, and this God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. And and all this sounds really great. What are you talking about? Sins of the Father. I'll get to it. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Woo, we love that. But here it is, verse 7b. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
If you wanted to understand how loving and patient God is, in context here, check out the children of Israel as they've passed on through the, through the years in Exodus and in Joshua. You see, he didn't just destroy all of Israel when they fell into idolatry. Yes, many people died as a result of the creation of the golden calf, you'll remember, but Israel stayed alive. And even later, when an entire generation, including leaders Aaron and Moses, died wandering in the desert, there were still two righteous men from that generation, Caleb and Joshua, that were the exception to that rule. By their character and actions, they lived to lead Israel after the Mosaic leadership time frame. And when people did follow the leadership of Joshua, what happened? Walls fell down. Battles were won. Needs were provided for. It was all good. But when people did not follow that leadership, because there were some, a man named Achan, specifically in Joshua chapter 7, he didn't follow the Lord's directions to do something specific, destroy the devoted things or to devote the things required over to the Lord. Instead, he took some plunder from Jericho, secretly hiding his stash. He broke fellowship by doing that. He broke community. And the secret sin was turning God's, uh, this secret sin was turning God's favor from all of them. Everybody in the community was suffering because of this secret sin, this unrepentant sin. It caused them to, uh, to lose a very easy victory they should have won over AI. And so eventually they ferreted out Achan. And even after he confessed, Joshua tells him, hey, give God glory and confess. And so he does, and he tells him exactly what he does. And so he still was put to death. He was still stoned to death. And get this, and this is where it ties in, not by what he did, but the guilty, con- the, the consequence. His entire family, everything that he owned, his tent that he hid his stuff in, <laughs> all his belongings, probably even included um, people who was in his family that wasn't his family. They were all stoned and then burned. And then after all of that was burned, and they're talking parents and children, they heaped stones on top of the remnants. And it was a reminder to the people. After this happened, the affliction, the, 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 the trouble that had come upon, upon the people of Israel left. They dealt with the guilt, and in this case, seems very extreme, but his entire family line was wiped from the face of the earth. Nobody can point back and say, oh yeah, well, I was a second, third cousin, twice removed on my uncle's side of Achan. Gone from the face of the earth. The only, it's interesting, the only note that we have is this story about him. It's the end of his family line in all of history. This sin caused his family's death. And it was one that was going to infect the community, infect the people of Israel if it hadn't been dealt with. 
constantly losing battles after battles because of it. So what's the solution? I think there's, there's some pieces to this that, we're, that we may miss in all of the, uh, all of the talk of racism and, and how to deal with identifying if you think or say or feel things that you didn't recognize before. Um, I believe that it's in the unity of the family of God we find the right direction for our life on this topic. I want to read to you an excerpt from the Church of the Nazarene Manual. It was highlighted a little bit ago from the uh, Board of General Superintendents. Um, It says this, and this is on the topic of discrimination, so it kind of encompasses racism, things of that nature. But this is just a portion of what they wrote, um, or that was what was written. It says, we reemphasize our belief that holiness of heart and life is the basis for right living. We believe that Christian charity between racial groups or gender will come when the hearts of people have been changed by complete submission to Jesus Christ. It's essential. Complete submission to Jesus Christ. And that the essence of true Christianity consists in loving God with one's heart, soul, mind, and strength and one's neighbor as oneself. And so that's all well and good. We recognize that good side. And we want to tag in here. It says, therefore, we renounce any form of racial or ethnic indifference, exclusion, subjugation, or oppression as a grave sin against God and our fellow human beings. We lament the legacy of every form of racism throughout the world, and we seek to confront that legacy through repentance, reconciliation, and biblical justice. We seek to repent of every behavior which we have been overtly or covertly complicit with the sin of racism, both past and present, and in confession and lament, we seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Have you ever been convicted and felt like, oh, I realize God has shown me I've done something wrong? That's the important first step to dealing with this, this, this concept of guilt. You see, as Christians, people who are not Christians and, and don't end up going over that threshold, they, they just sit here in their guilt. Or they do things that make them feel better to make up for it. Maybe they charitable contributions, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know. But when we're Christians and we have Jesus in our heart, how do we deal with the guilt of sin? when we've done something wrong, when we are convicted. Well, the first thing is, is that we recognize that we're convicted by the Holy Spirit pricking our hearts. We don't have that. There's two things going on. You don't have the Holy Spirit or there ain't anything wrong. I'm just telling you right now. If the Holy Spirit does convict you of something, you need to deal with it. And that's step two. We acknowledge our sin. I recognize what I did to that person um, that may have made them feel awful. That hurts my heart. The Holy Spirit showed me. Maybe it wasn't one of the big 10 commandments I broke just then, but something deep inside me says, you know what? That wasn't the most kind or compassionate thing I could have said. I want to try to make it right. And so we acknowledge that I've done something wrong of sin. We ask for forgiveness, God and the person of the ones that we've hurt. And then we accept that forgiveness 
granted to us by Christ's sacrifice. Remember, that last step is essential to moving towards that, uh, towards Christianity. Let's remember that verse from earlier that we read in 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow. But worldly sorrow brings death. Oh, woe is me. I'm always going to be a horrible person. My whole line will be horrible and terrible. We've got the sour grapes. I'm going to blame them, but not identify my own idolatry and own sin right here and now. There's a couple ways to think about it. But I don't believe our biggest problem uh, is that we are not aware of the wrong we've done. It is walking around feeling convicted of wrongs that we've never committed. Somebody somewhere told us we should feel bad for something. Why? The sins of the Father that need not to be owned or repeated by us. Let's deal with our own sins right here and now. Because false guilt that drives a person to degrade themselves for no possibility of redemption is no good at all. That is what being offered in this racial philosophy of today. Believers, there is only one way to combat false guilt, to combat even racism of itself. And it's not being anti-something. It's rather being pro-something. It's to be unified in our community. Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There was one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, Today, as you can see, I have the communion elements and I realized I did have a few more of these, so we're finishing these up today. Um, but I want to pass out communion elements here and we'll partake together. But there is there's something sacred about, obviously, about this sacrament. In the bread and in the juice, we connect and feel free to start opening that as you want. We'll, we'll partake of this together here in just a moment. In communion, we are individuals recognizing and remembering. Remember me as you do this. Remember his sacrifice, his broken body. Remember his blood. Individually, uh, we have our own spiritual walk, but in community, we can support and guide each other. If we see somebody off on the, on the outskirts and we know that they need to get right with God and we just let them go down the gutter of self-guilt or sin or whatever it is, we are not doing our job as, as a community of believers. We are to build one another up. We are to worship the Lord. And as we partake in these elements together, we join Christ in his death and his resurrection, not only just memorizing or remembering him, 
we're communing with God and we're communing with each other, communing with all Christians all over the world as we take these elements today. So if you would, this is the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus broke the bread on that night that he was betrayed. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, for this is my body, broken for you. Eat and be thankful. And likewise, at the end of the supper, he passed around the cup. Very common back then, not so common today. We don't usually share cups. But the unity of that image is striking. <laughs> you got to be very close to somebody, I think, or have absolutely no problem with germs in today's day to pass around a cup and drink out of it together. Uh, as we individually drink out of this, remember we are drinking and, and, and remembering and appreciating the Lord's sacrifice, his blood that washes away our sin, can wash away the guilt associated with it and dealt with it. Drink in remembrance of him and his sacrifice. I do truly believe there's a reason that we meet on, on a weekly basis and we connect together. It's why that when we don't, we feel far away and we have no community. I can't even imagine all the churches that had to shut down for more than a year. How far away they must feel from one another and perhaps from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we do not have to die for the sins of our forefathers. We don't even need to feel guilty for the sins of our forefathers. We can address it. We can recognize it. We can do things to help those who are struggling in the here and now. But Lord, each one will die for his or her own sin. We thank you for the... the Radical message, honestly, from Ezekiel, showing us that sin does not have to be hereditary either. It can jump a generation, as does and can righteousness, because each person is individual and they have free will to follow you or to not, to give up their life and be your disciple or to follow their own desires. And as we Think about your body and your blood today as we soak in your word this week. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us to be unified in this, that we can be a community that loves and cherishes one another, believing one another is of value, of great value to you, to not look down no matter what our skin tone is, but that whatever came before, we have to deal with our own sins here and of today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would recognize and help us to understand and to feel your prick of our heart when we are guilty of our own sins. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Go in peace.